Let's open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. And we are spending three weeks in 2 Peter chapter 3. It's that important. We're mainly asking the question, what is the future of planet Earth? What is the future of our planet? Where are we going? Is history moving somewhere? And because we are living maybe in the last of the last days or the age where this all may happen, I want to spend significant time here to help you understand some of the things Peter was writing uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, things that he was looking down the carter of time, maybe our day, maybe some of the geopolitical things we see going on. Now, when it comes to this kind of information, there are a lot of predictions, okay? Uh, when it comes to history and the future, Stephen Hawking, the brilliant astrophysicist from Cambridge, who died recently, shockingly said before he died, he thinks Earth has about 100 years. Uh, this is from a brilliant man looking at some of the things going on in nature and so forth, saying uh, he thinks the planet will cease, at least human beings, in about 100 years. Uh, George Friedman is a futurist. Uh, I read all of his books. He's brilliant. He's an economist. He has written a book called The Next 100 Years. Now, he's not saying what's going to happen. He's saying with all his information, uh, this is what he feels going to happen. He leads the Stratomore group uh, where people explore this kind of thing. And he believes by 2050, hold on to your seats, that Poland, Mexico, and Turkey will lead the world. Now, you're probably laughing at that, right? Well, that's what they would have done in Babylon if you ever said that the Greeks one day would lead the world. Sparta was a little city-state, so was Macedonia. It was laughable. Um, that's what they said in the 1850s if you would have said America would have led the world. Or during the Korean War, if you said we'd all have flat-screen TVs and drive Hyundais from South Korea, you would have been left out of the room, right? Now, uh, not to mix Friedman's, but Milton Friedman has won three Pulitzer Prizes Three Pulitzer Prizes, that's a, that's a smart dude. Uh, he's written a series of books, the latest called The World is Flat, Hot, and Crowded. And uh, he's, yeah, he's looking at all the projections for the next century, and he believes whoever discovers the next alternative to gasoline will rule the world. And again, it was laughable, laughable to think Bedouins, uh, Saudis, and by the way, the whole Middle East was cut up, you didn't even know they were Saudis. They weren't Saudis or Saudi Arabia until we cut them up, the United Nations, in the, in, uh, the 20th century. Uh, who would have believed they would be the power player they are and the discovery of oil brought them there? So uh, there's all these predictions. Evolutionists believe we'll just keep on going. It's been four billion years. Earth will just continue on the way it's always been. Peter's talked about that. Can I tell you something about history and predictions? I'm going to tell you anyway, all right? History is unpredictable. It's uncertain, and as I shared before, it's very surprising. When it comes to predictions, 99.9% .9 of them are wrong. These are well-meaning people. They're smart, they're intelligent. They're mainly wrong. And I'll tell you why, and you can mark these down. Two scriptures, Isaiah 46.6 and Isaiah 48.5. In Isaiah 46.6, God says, Remember the things of old, for I am God and there is no other. And God said, here's the separation. I'll declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done. And God said, my counsel will stand. God says, whatever I tell you, you can take it to the bank. You can put me to the test. In Isaiah 48, 5, he said, even from the beginning, I have declared it to you, lest you should say my idol has done these things or a carved image has made them come true. 
Now, if you guys have been here any amount of time, you know that uh, we talk about Bible prophecy now and again as we go through the scriptures. There are 325 predictions or what we call prophecies in the Old Testament books, the 39 books that make up the Old Testament, that speak about Israel, the nations as they are against Israel, and the coming of the Messiah. Okay, the Bible's not into weird predictions or, you know, who's going to be the president of South America. Only Israel, the nations, and the Messiah, all of them fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Daniel is a strategic prophet. Daniel is one of the boys who was taken captive when Jerusalem was sacked by Nebuchadnezzar um, and laid siege on the entire nation of what we would know as Israel, okay? This is somewhere 400 BC, right? He's taken as a teenager to Babylon, and God has given him a gift to interpret dreams. Nebuchadnezzar, the world power at the time, has a vision. It looks something like what you're going to see on the screen. It's a man made out of metal, head of gold, uh, chest and silver, uh, ch chest and arms of silver, thigh and belly of bronze, legs of iron. And Daniel gets the interpretation. He said, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. You are this wonderful superpower called Babylon, the hanging gardens, the walled cities. Um, this impregnable city, however, will be taken over by an inferior, an inferior kingdom, silver, inferior to gold, the Medes one arm, the Persians the other, and then it would be ridiculous in that time. Uh, Greece would rule the world, of course, who could predict Alexander the Great? And finally, for a thousand years, Rome would rule with a rod of iron. Now, what makes this prophecy astounding and which will drive you to Daniel 9 is that there are uh, 77s determined upon Israel. We, we talked about this last week. There are 77-year periods, 69 of them ushered in the Messiah. Talked about this last week. The last seven years are yet to come. They are the feet and toes of Daniel, iron mixed with clay. I don't have time to get into it. But Daniel said from that former empire, from that Roman empire, some European constituency will arise. Maybe Friedman's right. Maybe it is Poland. Maybe it is some European entity. Maybe it is the 25 nations that make up the European community now. I don't know. I know this. They are not aligned. We have Brexit. We have other nations looking to leave Europe. So a lot of what Daniel had to say is coming true. When I was in London the last time, I picked up this book, The Bible in the British Museum, Interpreting the Evidence. This whole book is all the things you can see in the British Museum that tells us the accuracy of Scripture. What I love about it is many of those things pertain to the book of Daniel. Skeptics hate Daniel. They say someone wrote it later and put his name on it. They try everything because Daniel gives us these world-dominating empires as they come against the nation of Israel. In the British Museum, there is the Cyrus Cylinder. He was the Persian king. There is uh, the cuneiform tablets that speak about Darius the Mede and, of course, bricks with Nebuchadnezzar's inscription upon them. It is airtight. And you need to understand this. No other religious book makes predictions. The Book of Mormon, uh, or, or if you look at the Bhagavad Gita, the Indian uh, scriptures, you could go far and wide and never see one prediction in any spiritual book and probably most secular books to predict the future. Why? Because no one knows. And if someone does make a prediction, you can hold them accountable. Only God knows. 
Peter tells us in 2 Peter that holy men of old wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It says they don't even know what they were writing about. God was moving on them. He was moving through them. The only prophecies left in Scripture to be fulfilled are still about Israel. We'll get into that next week, Romans 9 to 11, when all Israel will be saved, and the second coming of Jesus Christ. So Peter writes this in chapter 3, verse 10. Look in your Bibles. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat and both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, since the future of the planet is there will be an end, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, I want to stop here for a minute because when we talk about the day of the Lord, we're talking about a period that begins with the rapture of the church, runs through the tribulation which Jesus said would be a time of Jacob's trouble, and if those days weren't short, no flesh would survive. John tells us in Revelation 6 through 13, a third of the sea, a third of the earth, and a third of mankind will be destroyed. It will usher in the second coming of Jesus Christ after three and a half years of the unmitigated wrath of Almighty God, and then we will enter the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, can I call a timeout for a minute? Because when I got saved in the early 80s, I was on the afterglow of the explosion of Bible prophecy. And it was a fun time, and we were all caught up in it. We thought Jesus could come at any minute, and life was moving somewhere. And we had the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other. The problem with that era is people were so excited about Jesus coming uh, that they almost kind of were condescending on people that were not of faith, like almost enjoying the idea that God was going to do all this. And so I always want to call a timeout to make sure our spirits are right. Whenever I talk about this now, I like to dialogue with people. So I've been talking about this with people for a couple of weeks for a few reasons. Number one, young people have their whole life in front of them. And they're thinking, oh my gosh, I got my whole life in front of me and you're telling me the world's going to end. And then I got another problem in that it's been 2,000 years since Jesus said he was coming. And people look at this and they kind of come in with the argument that we're going to look at Peter. Where is the promise of his coming? When are all these things going to be? And then there's another situation. Some Christians, some Christians have a problem swallowing that God will judge the earth. That a third of the earth will be burned and a third of people, so forth and so on. And I want to make this abundantly clear. And, and listen, I'm God's apologist. I understand that. But you can't have the Jesus you want and not the Jesus that is. Can I tell you that? See, that's why Scripture has to be so a part of who you are, and you have to love Jesus for all he is, because he's lion and he's lamb. And you can't love the Jesus who put little children on his lap and said, turn the other cheek, and not love the Jesus who took a whip of cords and went through the temple and looked at Jerusalem and weeped and said, in 70 AD, this will all be gone. You can't have it both ways. When I talk to people who struggle with this, Here's what I want to encourage them to look at, verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth. And here's the phrase, guys, where righteousness 
dwells, where righteousness dwells. Last week I took you to the transfiguration. Peter writes about it in 2 Peter. He said, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty where Jesus was unveiled before them. Moses and Elijah appeared. And I kind of drilled down to where Jesus was, was in a garment that was whiter, Peter said, than any launderer could make it. Peter was looking at the purity, the authenticity of Jesus Christ. The God who says what he means and means what he says. I shared last week, this is what we're all longing for. We're all longing for political leaders and religious leaders. We're longing for something real, something true. It's why people read fables and fairy tales and literature. It's, it's why you read romance novels, right? Is there really romance out there? Is it really possible? Can I give you some good news? Want some good news? The good news is the end of the book. After we get through all the judgment, John writes this. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I saw the city of God, and there was no temple in it. Why? For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who were saved will walk in the light, and the kings of the earth will bring glory and honor to it. Its gates shall not be shut by day, and there's no night. No more keys, no more walled cities. Here's the beautiful thing. And there shall bring the glory and honor of the nations to it, but there shall by me no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. When righteousness reigns, can I tell you what will not be in that city? No children will ever get gassed by dictators. No children will ever be verbally or sexually abused. No pedophiles, no drug pushers. No disease, no mental illness, no lies, no addictions, no abuse of power, no love of money, no more compassion and justice weekends. There will be compassion and justice. Do you see why the early church said, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus? Do you see why Peter said, I want to stir you up by this? Because we're an anomaly. We are a subset of less than 1% of the people who have ever read a Bible that have it pretty good. Don't you think you have it pretty good? I mean, this subset of evangelical Christianity, you guys are going, you know, the Bible says Jesus is going to give you a mansion in heaven. You guys already have mansions. You're living in mansions compared to the history of the world. You're eating anything you want, anytime you want. We've got it pretty darn good here. And that hasn't been the history of the world. The history of the world was Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And I'll tell you what, if you walk through some of the slums I walk through, you'd say, come Lord Jesus, 500,000 people in squalor. And you look at the corruption, and you look at what's going on. I mean, I mean, this is a bad place. And when God comes, the judge of the earth will set it all right. And so instead of majoring on the judgment, Peter's saying, listen, there's coming a time of purity. There's coming a time of wonder. And it's going to be beautiful, but before that time, there's some things that need to happen. Now, if you believe in the day of the Lord, if you believe Jesus is coming, there's a problem. And Peter tells us about it in chapter 3, verse 3, saying, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their lust. And they're going to say, Where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they have from the beginning of creation. 
In other words, when you tell people you think Jesus is coming, they're going to say, you're nuts, you're a wacko, you're a lunatic, you checked your mind at the door, you're anti-intellectual, you literally have lost all your marbles. Anybody ever told you that? That's because you never told him he was coming. <laughs> tell him he's coming. Next time you're in a social setting, they will flee like cockroaches. They will avoid you at all costs. And yet we know it's true. We see the signs of his coming. And these scoffers will exist. Now, I love what my pastor used to say. The fact that they tell you you're nuts, they're fulfilling scripture. Because Peter said there's going to be scoffers in the last day telling you you're nuts. So while they're telling you you're nuts, they're fulfilling scripture. But look at their line of reasoning. Where's the promise of his coming? We look back in history, and then we look forward, and everything's going to continue as it was. Peter says they willfully are forgetting something. They actually forget two things. And here's what they forget, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old. The earth, standing out of water and in water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire under the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. Now, follow my logic here, even if you don't understand everything that's going on. Peter's basically saying there are two events in history that will happen by God's spoken word. One was the creation when God ex nihilo, that's Latin for he created something out of nothing, said, let there be light, and he created the world. Hebrews eleven twenty three 23 says we can only understand that by faith. By faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things exist were made by things that don't exist. Only God can do that. And then there's a time where God's gonna speak this final day of the Lord into existence. Here's what Peter's saying, follow the logic. If you don't believe that God created the world, you don't believe there's a day of the Lord. If you don't believe there's a day of the Lord, you don't believe there was a creation. And you can't pick and choose, guys. You gotta believe both of them because by the same word, they both happen. In other words, there's a designer. There's a God who planned the end from the beginning. You know, one of the most impressive things I've ever seen is the statue of David. It's amazing. This small museum where you see all these, you know, beautiful statues, and then you turn the corner, you're like, oh my gosh. But Michelangelo saw David when it was a chunk of marble. God's looking at a parade. He can see Moses here and John at the end of the world, writing the book of Revelation, and then the end of the world. God sees it all. He sees the end from the beginning. He's outside of time. Peter says they willfully forget two very important things, the fall and the flood. If you believe in uniformitarianism, in other words, I'll look back and I'll look at rocks and things and, uh, and, and then decide what happened and then what's going to happen, you're making a gigantic mistake because there were two cataclysmic events that have altered things. One was the fall, one was the flood. Now, we don't know a lot about the antediluvian world, the Genesis 1 through 5 world pre-flood. But what we do is enough to stitch together some very interesting things. And you guys can read about this, the Creation Institute and some other people do a great job. But let me read you Genesis 1. Day 1, God creates the world, let there be light. I'm interested in day 2 and day 3 because Peter talks about it here. Verse 6 of Genesis 1, God said, let there be a firmament, an expanse, 
in the midst of the waters to divide waters from waters. Thus God made the expanse. He divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And he called that day too. The earth, it looks like, was a watery ball. Okay? So God puts an expanse. Translation, sky. I think the best translation is atmosphere. So God separates the waters, and what you have is waters like the seas with air, which has volume, and then there's a water canopy around the earth. Now, the water canopy around the earth would have done several things. It would have kept out ultraviolet rays. It would have given earth a greenhouse effect. You think Longwood Gardens is worth going to? The Garden of Eden must have been all that, right? I mean, think about it. Um, it probably would have given us the long life, you know, with the genealogies we see of 800, 900 years. And uh, these lizards, by the way, lizards grow their entire life, would have become great lizards or what we know as dinosaurs. Uh, there would have been less disease on the earth. Then day three comes, and God says, uh, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. He called those seas, let dry land appear. So we have a world that is vastly different from the one we know. When God judged the world in Noah's flood, 40 days of rain and 40 nights of rain would never flood the world and wipe everything out. What God did was open the vapor canopy. All that water around the ball flooded in. Mountains shot up. The earth was fractured. All the water under the ball flooded the earth. Noah was on the ark for over a year. And he landed on Ararat. This was not a local flood. This was worldwide at many thousands of feet. How can we be sure? We have found seashells on almost every major mountaintop, including the Grand Canyon. We have a fossil record. How in the world would you get fossils? Animals die and deteriorate. You would need them entombed in one cataclysmic event, and that's where they came from. Plate tectonics probably happened, volcanic activity. And when Noah came off of the ark, there was a change in atmosphere. Many species could not survive, including what I believe were the dinosaurs. So if you look back and say, oh my gosh, everything's going to stay the same, you're making a grand mistake. Now, why am I talking about this? Because Jesus, when asked in Matthew 24, what is the sign of your coming into the end of the age, he gave them certain signs and conditions, but then he said this in verse 37, but as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And then he drilled down to this, that the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and giving the marriage until, right up to the last minute, the day that Noah entered the ark and they were all taken away. And the idea is they were taken to judgment. Jesus said, it'll be a time when the last thing you're expecting is judgment. Business as usual. It won't be a worldwide depression. We won't run out of oil. It'll be a time where we think man has brought life to its zenith. And then Jesus will come. Now, do you ever walk in Hallmark or a store and see a fluffy little Noah's Ark, like a felt Noah's Ark? Or you go into a store and there's all the animals, almost every children's shirt. I know children's shirts, they actually built an ark. Which, which I always crack up at because I get in trouble for saying things in the sanctuary and there's kids in here. And yet churches have a Noah's Ark. You know that ark is the symbol of the greatest genocide that ever came to this planet? 
Think about it. We, we relegate it to a children's story. This is genocide on a mass scale. Every culture, the Egyptians, Babylonians, the Assyrians, everywhere in Asia, over a hundred different flood stories. Why? It happened. And Jesus said there were conditions and signs. Let me give you a few. Preoccupation with physical appetites, Luke 17, 27. Rapid increase in technology, Genesis 4, 22. Grossly materialistic attitude and interest, Luke 17. Disregardness for the sacredness of marriage, Matthew 24, 38. And a rejection of the inspired word of God, 1 Peter 3, 19. But in Genesis 6, I want to just give you very quickly three that interest me. Genesis 6, verse 1 says, It came to pass when men began to multiply on the earth. So in Noah's day, there was a multiplication of people. Now God said be fruitful and multiply. Nothing wrong with that. But in the history of the world, we haven't seen the multiplication of people. In the Middle Ages, somewhere in the 15th century, there were only 370 million people on the planet. By 1800, we reached a billion, but it took 300 years. A century later, there was only 1.5 billion. That's not multiplication. But from 1900 to two. Uh, to 2000, we went from 1.5 billion to 6 billion. They're projecting in 2100, 18 billion as a high, 12 billion as a low. That's population explosion. That's multiplication. Those are the days we're living in. Now, it goes on to say something else happened. When men were multiplying on the face of the earth, daughters were born to the sons of men. The sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for them, of whom they chose. And God said, my spirit's not going to strive with man. God was sorry he made man. In those few verses, God said, there is a straw that broke the camel's back. When women... And I, again, this is, we'll save this for Genesis. We have nowhere near any time to talk about this. The Benai Elohim, the fallen angels, somehow mixed with human beings, some form of cohabitation, and gave us the Hebrew Nephilim, men of renown, giants that roamed the land. Pastor Bob, you sound you're, like you're reading Aesop's fables. What are you talking about? Listen, there was some form of demonic activity that happened during this time, were demonic forces combined with human forces to produce something God said there would be no turning back from. Remember at the Tower of Babel what God said? Let us go down and confuse their language because there's nothing they attempt to do that will be held from them. God said, this is enough, it's too much. I have read enough about cloning and talked to enough people to know one day it's gonna happen. Not my lifetime. But it's going to happen. They're working feverishly. And it's going to bring us to a time that we see in Genesis 6, where man now is finally going to meet what he desired in Genesis 3, to be like God. Not only the arbiter of good and evil, but now to create like God. God said it was enough in Noah's time. It'll be enough in this time. And, and let me tell you something about time. A day is a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day with God. What that's saying is God doesn't judge time in ways that we do, right? It's not minutes and seconds. God judges time morally. 
He gave the Egyptians 400 years. He gave the Amorites 400 years. The church age has been 2,000 years because God doesn't want anybody to perish. The doors of the ark are open, but one day they will close. And one day God will say that's enough. And then finally, this third condition that is overwhelming says God was sorry that he made man because every thought and every intent of his heart was only evil continually, violence. But here, go back and read the record. God said every thought and intent of his heart. God doesn't say every action. Now, until the internet, we didn't know the thoughts and intents of every man's heart, did we? Did we? Now we know. Now don't get me wrong, social media is a wonderful tool, the internet's a, a brilliant um, invention. It's gonna make us a one world, it's gonna bring the world together. But there's a cesspool out there that you can look. You wanna know what people think and the intents of their heart are? It's dark and it's out there. And I think we're living in the days that Jesus talked about. But then we get to a glorious verse. God said, I am sorry that I have made man, but Noah found grace in the eyes of God. But Noah found grace. First time the word grace appears in the Bible. And the first time is the most important time. That means in the midst of judgment, where Noah deserved a watery grave like everyone else, God said, I'll spare human beings. Was Noah spared because he was holy? Was he spared because he was righteous? Now, he was a godly man. Hebrews 11 says that his life began with faith and ended with faith. He's, he's hailed as a hero of faith. But to me, Noah was like all of us. We've all sinned and gone astray, right? Every man has sinned. And he proved it after this great heroic feat, right? A hundred years of building an ark and a year on the ark. And what does he do when he gets out? He gets drunk, right? And by the way, if I was on an ark with all those animals and people for a year, I would have got drunk too. No antidepressants in that day. Alcohol was the only option. <laughs> Christianity has never been and will never be a meritocracy. No one will go to heaven because they were better than someone else. If good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, Christ would have never come. The cross tells us where we stand, that we're sinners who need God's grace and Noah found grace. And I want to tell you something. Sometimes we think grace is simple. Sometimes we think, yeah, I was saved by grace. Yeah, grace is me, not getting what I deserve. Yeah. We... Grace is messy. Caleb Katenbach, has, that's his book, Messy Grace. It's messy. I'm discovering more about grace the longer I live. In no way, shape, or form am I reformed, okay? And I don't even know how many people really know what that means. But let me tell you this. The longer I live, I know God chose me. The longer I live, I know that I didn't find God, he found me. I also know whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I don't know how to marry that up, but I know grace is mind-blowing. And I know Noah found grace and so can you. And this man had a hammer in his hand and a Bible in the other hand for a hundred years and was mocked. Noah, it's never rained, you're building an ark? Remember the vapor canopy, there was a mist that watered everything? Noah, you're out of your mind. You're wasting your life. It's never rained before. Mockers. They mock Noah, they're going to mock us. Mockers tell us there's no God, there's no judgment, there's no miracles, there's no word of God. 
There's just life that's always been and always will be. If that's true, if there's no designer, if we're not moving somewhere, and they'll never admit this, life has no purpose. It has no purpose. I don't care if you're LeBron James, if you're the President of the United States, I don't care what you do. No one's ever going to know, right? No one's ever going to know. This is all, if, the, if this is all there is, it's, it, 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 there, there's no purpose, there's no sense to any of this. It doesn't make any sense. Richard Dawkins took out a campaign. He's a literary evolutionist. He took out a campaign where he put on buses in London. There probably is no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. I'm not worrying. I know there's a God. I'm not worrying. Jesus died in my place. In fact, I am enjoying life, the life I have in Christ. But you see what he's trying to say? And what he's saying is actually ridiculous. What he's saying is there's no purpose to life, so go out and enjoy life. It makes no sense. The mockers tell us all things continue as they were since the beginning. Folks, I don't know how to say it. That's evolution. I know you get sick of me talking about it. That's evolution. The blind watchmaker, the unguided force. And don't put God in the equation, please. Don't make God a part of that silly equation. Uh, yesterday I was in Barnes & Noble. A.N. Wilson, not a religious man, a biographer, has written a new book on Charles Darwin. Do you know why he wrote this book? He realized there hadn't been a book on Darwin in 25 years. So he decided to write a new biography. He read all the other biographies. Can I read you the opening line of his book? This is a man with no religious dogma and no other intentions but to write a biography. His opening sentence is this, Darwin was wrong. This was the unlooked for conclusion to my biography. You believe this? It was certainly not my intention when I began detailed reading for this book to part company from the mainstream of scientific opinion which still claims to believe, and in some senses does believe, the central contentions of Darwin's most famous book, on the origin of the species. And he goes on to say, you know what? He goes, we have to trust science because we're not scientists. And I started this book trusting him. And at the end, he writes a book called The Victorian Mythmaker. This is a secular guy. The Victorian Mythmaker. He says Darwin was a brilliant naturalist. The problem is he was lazy. He was ambitious. He wanted to kind of outsmart all his peers by writing a theory of everything. And then A.N. Wilson gets into intelligent design and what we know about DNA, it's ridiculous, the monkey DNA, the human DNA, they could never cross, there's code. I mean, I'm not gonna get into it. Listen, for me, it never passed the eye test. It never passed the eye test. And in the fossil record, which they claim is 400 million years old, there is not one intermediary species. There's not one species between one and the other. There's no evidence. And you know what cracks me up? The smartest person who ever existed doesn't believe in it. Satan. Satan, the one who spawned it, he must laugh all day. Because he was there. He was there when Job said all the morning stars applauded and said, God, they all gave God tens. God, you're, you're, you're way cool. The morning stars rejoice together at God's creation. Let there be light. Oh my gosh, God, what are you doing? And then he makes man in his image. Oh my God. 
Satan doesn't believe that. He laughs all day long. There's another thing they deny. Epics in history. Well, let's get away from the Bible. They look back and say, all things have always been the same. No, they haven't. There's been epics in history that are unexplained and haven't happened since. John Barry's a New York Times writer. He's written a very prolific book called Great Influenza. There was a flu epidemic in 1918 that started in the United States in western Kansas. Uh, all flus come from birds, and these two men were um, affected, were inflicted with the flu by these two birds. And because it was the start of World War II, they went to Army barracks, spread it there. You know what the conclusion of this outbreak was? 100 million people worldwide died. 10% of the world population. Philadelphia was one of the most hard-hit cities. Uh, we lost a third of our population. The loss was 10 times the bubonic and black plagues of Europe. So when you look back and say, well, no, it's always been the same, it's ridiculous. There's, there, there has been things like this all the time. They deny miracles, which denies the Bible and present-day miracles. We could go on and on and on and on. But Peter says, therefore, verse 11, since all these things will be dissolved. In other words, if God has done this before, he's going to do it again. And, and here's a thought. Just, just think about this. You know, when God created the world, he put the very mechanism of judgment in the world. All that water would one day destroy the world he made. He, he put it in there in his foreknowledge. He's also put in there the end of all things. And I talked to you last week about when you break that atom apart, you get fervent heat, and the Bible talks about the heavens rolling away like a scroll, and there's terminology that looks a lot like not a nuclear uh, ex exchange by man, but when God, when Colossians, when Christ holds the world together by the word of power, when he lets it go, it'll roll away like a scroll, built into the fabric of the universe and of earth. Peter says, since all these things are going to happen, and because the earth will melt with fervent heat, what manner of men ought you to be? And then he tells us, verse 14. Beloved, as you look forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, without spot and blameless. You therefore, beloved, verse 17, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Is Peter saying the end of the world is coming? Go out and get a sandwich board and put repent, put your dogs to sleep, jack up your credit cards, and tell everybody they're doomed? No. He said, because you know all this is about to happen, here's what you need to do. And he, and he writes 1 Peter. 1 Peter says, be submissive to government, be submissive to your husbands, be submissive to your wife, raise godly kids, honor the king. The church has always lived out of balance for some reason. Like I said last week, one eye on eternity and one eye on this world. But here's a question I all want to leave you with, and you can't answer it now. You need to go home. You need to process it. What manner of men ought we to be? How 
should we live our lives? You know, Judah said something about an act where the woman took an alabaster box of perfume, a year's wage, broke it over Jesus. And you know what Jesus said, uh, Judah said? What a waste. And the amazing thing is his life was a waste. It was the greatest waste of a life. That's what Jesus said. An apostle. Out of 110 billion people that ever lived, you're an apostle. And if you think of what the apostles had done, and, and the gates of New Jerusalem will have their name, I mean, it, what a waste. Guys, we get one life. Don't waste your life. What manner of men, what manner of women ought we to be? Can't answer it right now. But Peter says we should grow in grace. And I teach you this all the time. You should be growing. I believe the longer you walk with Christ, the more excited you should be, the more you should be growing. I am so excited about the people in my age bracket who are growing. They're still excited. They're looking to their latter years. They're trying to influence a younger generation. I'm also well aware of the Bible talking about shipwreck and people drifting away and people losing steam. I don't know what to do. I'm just another beggar telling you where to find bread. But I know this. When Jesus turned water into wine, they said normally they put out the inferior. They give you the good stuff up front and they give you the inferior at the end, but you saved the best for last. That's a mistranslation. You saved the best for now. No matter what God's done in your life, this is the best because this is all we have. And the question is, what are we going to do with our one and only life? How are we going to live? What choices are we going to make? What decisions? How are we going to spend our money and our time? What are we going to invest in? I think most of you can look at this building. I have no interest in churchianity. I have no interest in buildings or icons or things. Everything we've done here is to generate community and life and, 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 and minister and, and, and see people come to faith. That's all we're about. Because that's what the early church was about. There was a movement of the Spirit in the church that 3,000 were saved and 5,000 were saved and God was building his church and it was a beautiful thing. And that's what we're saying, God, would you breathe on us and would we see great things? That's why we pray for our lawn and we pray for what goes on here. Because life does have purpose and it does have meaning. And the future of planet Earth is grand. We gotta get through very horrific season and when we come out the other side there will be a life that you will never believe and I always tell people this um, no one told you about this life right and that's been pretty good God's told us about the life to come it's going to be grand grand